Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is George Robbins, and this is episode 166 for the second half of October of 2017. The half-truth that I'm going to talk about in this episode is whether the age of a star with error bars that overlap with the age of the universe means that all of science is wrong and the universe was created 6,000 years ago. I tend to not like to lead with such an obvious bias in my intro, but the topic for this episode really can be summarized just by that single run-on sentence. For a bit more detail before we really get into it, Answers in Genesis recently, uh, it's one of the three major Young Earth Creationism Institutes involved with, well, confronting nearly every aspect of modern science, they recently published a blog post written by Danny Faulkner, one of their primary writers in the field of astronomy. In the post, Dr. Faulkner points to a journal publication about the age of a star, and the star has a calculated age that is older than the calculated age of the universe. His conclusion is that modern science is so model-dependent that it's pretty much useless and nothing can be trusted. Ergo, Young Earth Creationism. The format for this episode is going to be very much like some of the original episodes of the podcast, discussing the appropriate background material first and then getting into the subject matter specifically and reassessing the claim along with, as usual, some various diversions here and there. So first off, the paper in question. Howard Bond, who's a scientist working, or at least who worked when this paper was published, at the Space Telescope Science Institute, published a paper in 2013 along with four co-authors. They published the paper in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, which is one of the primary astrophysics journals, so this checks out. Uh, It checks the appropriate argument from authority boxes, or at least uh, sanity check boxes, that the authors are mainstream academics, and they published in a mainstream peer-reviewed journal. That's not to say that every academic has correct ideas, nor is it to say that anything that makes it through peer review is accurate, but at least it isn't something self-published or something like on the above-top-secret forums or in the Journal of Cosmology. The paper discusses the star HD 140283, That's the 140,283rd star in Henry Draper's star catalog from many eons ago, but it's still used today. I'll just call it the star at this point. The star is very old. They say that it's very old for a couple of reasons. Reason one is that the star is very metal poor. To an astronomer, the universe is composed of hydrogen, helium, and then everything else is a metal. Now, I know that's going to break most people, but... Just go with it. So yes, that means that even oxygen is a metal so far as astronomers are concerned. Anyway, based on models for how the universe formed, it was almost all hydrogen, some helium, and then a very, very, very little bit of extremely light elements like lithium and beryllium. That means that only those elements would have been around for the very first stars, meaning that the very first stars would have been very, very metal poor. We so far not detected any stars from this population of stars, so at the moment, it's still technically theoretical. The next population of stars had metals that were incorporated from the death throes of these first generations of stars, and I'll get to those more towards the end of the episode. But what's more important for right now is that we can measure the ratio of metals 
Remember, metals being anything, it's not hydrogen or helium. So we can measure the ratio of metals to hydrogen in stars by looking at their light. We can spread their light out, and we can see the effects of different elements absorbing different wavelengths. This is called a spectrum, or spectrograph will create and give you a spectrum. If there's a lot of a certain element, then the wavelengths of light that that element absorbs will be almost entirely missing from the star's light. But if there's just a little bit of that element, then we'll see most of the light of those wavelengths from the star, but there will be a little bit that's absorbed by that little bit of the element that's there. So what these astronomers did is just that, or they used other work by other astronomers who did that for this star in particular. In this case, they used published data by other astronomers for this star. In fact, this star is one of the first to have been shown back in 1951 to have a metallicity much lower than the sun's. Uh, in astronomy, we tend to, or at least in astrophysics, we tend to measure everything relative to the sun, and so what we do is we measure the star's metallicity relative to our star. Anyway, to circle back, the star is metal poor, meaning that it formed when there was very little metal in the universe, soon after the universe's own formation. Reason two for the star being old is that it's in a region of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, or HR diagram, where the brightness of stars is extremely well correlated with the age of the star. I don't think I've talked about the HR diagram before, except maybe in episode 124 on the astronomical distance ladder. So, what is this key piece of stellar astrophysics? Well, the HR diagram was developed at roughly the same time, independently, oddly enough, by a scientist with the last name of Hertzsprung and another scientist with the last name of Russell. They graphed the star's color on the x-axis and the star's brightness on the y-axis. When doing that, they found that almost all stars fell along a roughly diagonal line from the upper left to the lower right, meaning that most really, really bright stars were also very blue, and most really, really dim stars were relatively red. There are various branches and clusters of other stars in the HR diagram, but this has turned into one of the key tools in the study of stars. The life cycles of stars also progress along the HR diagram in various ways, and many models of stellar evolution will include an output HR diagram showing how the star moves through it. Now, almost of course, there are almost always going to be exceptions to the rule, but this star in particular falls in a very, very well understood region of the HR diagram where its true brightness is very diagnostic of its age. So, the third reason that they think that this is a very old star is that they figured out how far away it is. That may seem like a non sequitur, or perhaps even trivial, but it's not. The astronomers used observations from the Hubble Space Telescope to track the star's motion across our vantage point as Earth moves in its orbit around the Sun. They were able to see it moving very slightly, and when they did the analysis, they were able to get a result that's five times more precise than the previous measurement by a European mission from about two decades ago called Hipparchus. The only way to know a star's true brightness is to know how far away it is. I discussed this idea again at length in episode 124, so just in brief here, the idea is that I can shine a light towards you and it may look bright, but absent any other information, you have no way of knowing if the light looks bright because I'm very close to you and it's a faint light source, 
or if it looks bright because I'm really far away from you and it's extremely bright. Incidentally, this is also why anyone who says that there is a UFO and it was traveling this fast and it was this far away and this big doesn't know what they're talking about. See, I think episode two, very, very early episode for more on that. Moving back to this, again, as I said, there will be digressions, there always are. Moving back to this, in astronomy, the standard distance to state a star's absolute brightness is how far it would look if it were 10 parsecs away. Parsec is related to Earth's distance from the sun because we get parallax that way. So a standard 10 parsecs is about 32.6 light years. But if we ever revise the Earth's distance from the sun, then the value for a parsec is not going to change. It's just the conversion to a light year that will change. In other words, if the measuring stick changes, so if you have a foot and it changes slightly, it's still called a foot. It's just going to equate to a slightly different measurement when you convert it to something like a meter. With that said, by determining the distance to a factor of five times better, more precisely than has been done before, the astronomers in this paper can determine its brightness much more precisely. By determining its brightness much more precisely, they can determine its position on the HR diagram much more precisely. By determining its position on the HR diagram much more precisely, they can determine its age much more precisely. The result from all of this is that they get an age of about 14.46 plus or minus 0.08 billion years old, which is pretty old. The currently accepted value for the age of the universe is 13.77 plus or minus 0.06 billion years also pretty old, but younger than the star if you take the numbers at face value and don't look at them as a scientist would. More on that in a bit. First, how do we know how old the universe is? These days, the number is based on several completely different lines of evidence. These include measuring the expansion rate of the universe and then literally just running the clock backwards, uh, and also measuring the cosmic microwave background radiation, or CMB. I couldn't find an episode quickly where I talked about the CMB, so again, really quickly in this episode, the CMB is effectively the light from the universe as soon as it turned transparent. What that means is that the universe was so hot early on that the entire universe was basically like a star, meaning that the light could not travel freely within it. The light kept bouncing around and getting absorbed and emitted, and it was just a real giant mess. This is why light from the sun that's produced in the core takes somewhere around on the order of a 100,000 years to actually get out. Uh, and that's just because it gets bounced around so much. It gets absorbed and re-emitted, and it does almost a random walk before it can get to the surface. With that said, as soon as the universe expanded, it cooled. That's pretty basic physics, where if you increase the volume while holding the amount of material constant, pressure must decrease. And it cooled enough, and it got low enough density that light finally could stream freely around. That pattern of light in the sky is known as the cosmic microwave background radiation, and it gives us our first picture of the early universe. Based on it, we can figure out various things, including how old it is. 
It's possible that I'll do a whole show on this, but in the meantime, suffice to say, the age of the universe now is very well constrained, and that's reflected in the very small error bar of 0.06 billion years, which gets us back to the age of this star. What Dr. Faulkner is effectively doing is revising an argument that real scientists were having just 20 years ago, before we had good measurements of the CMB, and before we knew a lot about the nuclear and stellar physics that we know now. Just 20 years ago, there was a big problem in astronomy where the models for the ages of the oldest stars put them at up to 20 billion years old, but models for the age of the universe put it at as young as 10 billion years. Clearly something was amiss. And we figured it out. As I said, we learned a lot in the last 20 years. The Hubble Space Telescope 20 years ago was really just a few years into its mission, and we were still using it to pin down the astronomical distance ladder, which was revising the ages of stars down. We were learning a lot about the atomic and nuclear physics because computers were starting to get better and laboratory equipment was getting better, and we were able to revise the ages of stars down again, based on incorporating that updated physics. Things like how quickly stars can fuse certain elements together at a certain temperature and pressure, or even what that temperature and pressure would be in different parts of the star. All of those factors affect the models of stellar evolution and the theoretical HR diagrams that come out of those models. Similarly, the Hubble Space Telescope was helping us to get a handle on that distance ladder and therefore brightness of objects and distances to objects, and therefore the expansion rate of the universe was helping us to revise the age of the universe up. The COBE satellite, and then the WMAP satellite, and then the Planck satellite all got us progressively better and better maps of the CMB, which also helped to considerably better understand the age of the universe, again revising it up. As I said, nowadays the age of the universe is pretty well known. Stellar evolution models are also fairly good and unlikely to be radically changed moving forwards. But there are still uncertainties, and that's what error bars are from, and those need to be recognized when looking at this star, with a model age of 0.69 plus or minus 0.8 billion years older than the age of the universe. Dr. Faulkner pretty much admits that in his article, stating, Most astronomers have ignored this difficulty, assuming that the universe could be interpreted in a way that solves the problem. And that's true. But it's also misleading when he wrote earlier in the article, quote, it would require both sets of errors to conspire in a very convenient way, end quote. And that's simply not how you're supposed to work with error bars. That's not what they mean. Where Dr. Faulkner also shows his creationism side and ignores how science results are to be read, he states in the very next sentence towards the end, however, that may be unlikely, and it hardly solves the need for the existence of even older stars to explain the metal content of HD 140283. That introduces a new problem that I'll get to momentarily. But clearly, he's trying to get you to look at the numbers without the attached error bars, and in science, error bars are key. I've reviewed several papers, grants, and other things where if I see graphs or numbers like tables without error bars, it's something that I always try to call out for fixing. I even do this in science fairs where, to me, it can make the difference between getting first place and not. 
The reason error bars are so important is that they make the difference between a significant result and a non-significant result. Let's do a pretty simple for instance. Let's say, for instance, that someone did an experiment and discovered that half, 50% of all people are psychic. Wow, you might think, but the error bars on that 50% number are plus or minus 50%, meaning that anywhere from 0 to 100% of people are psychic. Suddenly, it doesn't seem nearly as significant as it did before. For a lot more on error bars, see episode 82 on how to design a hyperdimensional physics experiment. But from that contrived example, we come up to this situation. The error bars that are quoted are one standard deviation, or one sigma, meaning that there is a 68% chance that if the experiment were repeated, the number would be within that range. Or, another way to interpret it is that that range represents 68% of all of our uncertainties that go into making that number. If you assume that the error bars are Gaussian, meaning that they follow a classic bell-shaped curve, then if you double the error bars, they encompass 95.4% of the repeats. In physics, we pretty much always quote one standard deviation, though in particle physics we use five. In statistics, they often use 95%, which is very close to two sigma. In my own subfield of crater studies, several of us are trying to get people to move from one sigma to two, but that's a separate story. Anyway, the one sigma error bars in this article overlap. 14.46 plus or minus 0.8 versus 13.77 plus or minus 0.06. That means that there is no conflict with this star being older than the universe so far as pretty much any scientist would interpret those numbers. The only people who don't interpret those numbers correctly and interpret it as a problem for the age of the universe or the age of the star are those who don't know basic statistics or have an agenda. The authors themselves state, and this is the authors of the 2013 paper, quote, there is a remarkable accordance within their respective uncertainties between the age of the universe inferred from the CMB, the age of the chemical elements, and the ages of the oldest stars, end quote. That also doesn't take into account the fact that the authors of the paper even state that the plus or minus 0.8 on their age for the star is a minimum, and that there are other sources of uncertainty which are not included, meaning that there's even less of a non-issue. The authors also stated an important implication of their work is to use the star in the distance ladder, but that if they do, it changes the distance to another object which makes their new distance to that object smaller than almost all other distance measurements. A potential fix is to make their star a little teeny tiny bit redder, that there may be a little bit of dust between us and it which they didn't account for. But if they do, if they make the star a little teeny bit redder, it makes the age of the star even younger by about 0.65 billion years, meaning that it's in even better agreement with the age of the universe. Before I end this main segment, I said that there was one other thing to address here, and that's the first generation of stars. Dr. Faulkner stated that we need older stars to explain the metal content of this one. And in fact, the authors of the 2013 paper even state that. In their implications, they wrote, It is not quite a primordial star, given its low but non-zero metallicity. 
The issue here is that you need the first generation of stars to make heavier elements like gold or lead or nickel or iron or uranium or, yes, even oxygen. But that's also not a problem here. The first stars likely started to form when the universe was only about 200 million years old, plus or minus a bit, and these first stars were about 20 times the mass of the sun up to several hundred times the mass of the sun. The larger they are, the faster they go through their material, and despite having so much more of it, they can die out and go supernova in under a million years. That million years is in the noise for this kind of number, so we can subtract about 0.2 from the age of the universe for the time for those first stars, and we still get a pretty good comparison between the age of the universe, or actually the age of the first stars, and the age of this star. They're just slightly more than one standard deviation from each other, meaning that they're still practically identical so far as a scientist is concerned. But if we add the age difference of minus 0.65 billion years for that extra little bit of reddening that might be the case, then they are very easily compatible with each other. The whole point of the Answers in Genesis article, if you read it from start to finish, is to strongly cast doubt on the science and to promote a God-did-it answer. It's filled with insinuations of scientists not really understanding the questions posed or even trying to skew the numbers to match a desired outcome, or, at the very least, that's how I interpret the article. The end is also a dead giveaway as to the true intent, quote, if one changes the model, the problem may not even exist. But certainly within the creation model, this isn't a problem. End quote. And that's true. If you assume that you have something that can basically erase all the confusion, all the doubt, and everything that doesn't make sense to you, then there are no problems whatsoever. But that's not how science works. And that's why I and many others argue that young earth creationism is a science stopper. Its very basic premise is to promote a supernatural answer to everything, and thus any science finding that gets away from a divine whim goes against it. As with the last episode, focusing on getting these out almost on time, so there are no additional segments for this episode. The November 1st episode, I'm hoping, is going to be the uh, part two to the modern-day lunacy on the lunar eclipses. There might be a part three. It depends on whether I think that uh, the Hoagland material should be broken out from the flat Earth material, but we shall see. With that said, thanks for listening, and I hope that you stay tuned for next time. That wraps up this topic for the 166th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Did you know that sixth is supposed to be one syllable? Anyway, thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.schairdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at schairdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, and on the Facebook page for the podcast, 
or tweet me at pseudoastro. I do read every message, and I'm always behind, but I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and two or more random people that you may never meet in real life.